When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to the special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I am, as always, your host, Jerry Landry. From time to time, I intend to jump out of the narrative to examine recent events through the lens of presidential history. As we have recently had an address delivered in February 2017 by our current president to a joint session of Congress televised nationwide and across the globe, I wanted to use this opportunity to discuss how presidents have addressed the nation over time, as naturally, with technological innovations, that has changed. I hope you'll find these exercises beneficial and informative, and as always, I welcome your feedback. As we've noted on this podcast in episode 1.3, Washington established a strict protocol for public engagement. Quote, Dinners were to be held every Thursday at 4, the guests being only government officials and their families, invited in an orderly system of rotation to avoid charges of favoritism. As to the general public, Washington established two occasions a week for greeting them, a levy for men only on Tuesdays from 3 to 4, and tea parties for men and women held on Friday evenings. While some of his critics would assert that such rigid practice stunk of aristocratic airs, it was more of a practical matter for a man who had already been proclaimed father of his country long before becoming president. He was the 18th century equivalent of a superstar, and if he left his doors wide open all the time, there's no way that Washington would ever have been able to do any executive work. He took his role as chief executive too seriously to allow himself to become a mere showpiece, though Washington did realize that was part of the job. To that end, he did something that very few of his pre-20th century successors did, and took a tour of the nation, going first on a tour of the northern states, then venturing all the way to Georgia in the south. Given that road conditions at that point were abysmal in many parts of the nation, his carefully planned schedule would often get thrown off course, but he was still able to see and be seen by larger numbers than any public figure had been seen by that point in history or indeed would be seen prior to the advent of motion picture technology. In his dealings with government, Washington would fulfill his constitutional obligation and deliver his annual State of the Union address in a speech to a joint session of Congress. You may be asking yourself why I'm emphasizing that he delivered it as a speech in person. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. When it came to an address that he intended for the nation, namely his farewell address, Washington chose to use print media to disseminate it as widely as possible. Washington created a communications plan that worked quite efficiently for his two terms, but didn't seem to work as well when the message was coming from John Adams. Thus, Adams' successor would introduce important changes to how he would approach public relations. Though Jefferson would retain some of the functions that had been associated with the presidency, such as the annual New Year's levy, By and large, Jefferson opted for more informal gatherings than the rigid, structured public levies of his predecessors. His dinner parties did away with the typical social distinctions and hierarchies, as Jefferson adopted a self-described pell-mell protocol, something that deeply offended the sensibilities of the British minister to the U.S. 
Jefferson overall had more of an open-door policy at the new executive mansion, a door which might possibly be opened by Jefferson himself, clad in a housecoat and slippers. Thankfully for the third president, at the time, there were few people to wander in from the new federal city. Jefferson also did away with the tradition of delivering a speech to Congress for the State of the Union, and instead sent a written message, which would then be read aloud by someone else. And it wouldn't be until the early 20th century before a president delivered a State of the Union address in person again. While putting their own nuances on the process, most of the presidents prior to the Civil War did not change much about their methods of approaching the public, with the notable exception of William Henry Harrison. Old Tippecanoe was known as being a man of the people, and thus, when he put his hat in the ring for president, rather than following the usual convention of remaining at home and responding to correspondence, while allowing others to hit the campaign trail on his behalf, Harrison decided to go out himself and speak to the people. This in-person appeal to the people, coupled with the message of Jackson and the Democratic Party adopting a more monarchist, heavy-handed approach to governance, sold the public on the Whig Party and carried Harrison to the White House in 1840, though he would not be there long before his sudden demise. One other development of the time was the sharp increase in the number of partisan newspapers to use to disseminate the message of either the administration party or the opposition. While newspapers had been around and active in that regard since the early days of the Republic, the Jacksonian era saw print media being used in greater effect than ever before. Abraham Lincoln is often talked about as an agent of change, and indeed, in the realm of communication, he was as well. Though rather than being focused on public relations, Lincoln was more concerned about acquiring information and being able to respond more rapidly. Lincoln was the first president to make extensive use of the telegraph, which allowed him to communicate with his commanders on the ground and get more real-time reports on the progress of military operations. Instead of the weeks of lag time before intelligence got back to Washington or communications and orders arrived out in the field, as in the Mexican-American War, Lincoln was able to have a presence in the various theaters of war and truly live up to his title of commander-in-chief. Likewise, he was the first president since James Madison to go to the battlefield in person. This first-hand account helped him to better understand the conditions and the needs of the army, which was crucial for a president whose entire military experience comprised of a few weeks in a militia company. His utilization of telegraph technology also allowed Lincoln to receive up-to-the-minute results during election night in 1864, when he was running for re-election, and thus... Lincoln was able to go out to a crowd gathered at the north fence of the White House the morning after the election and say to them, quote, I'm thankful to God for the approval of the people. Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, would revive the practice of a sitting president going out to appeal to the people with his swing around the circle tour, though the appeal fell far short of expectations. Rutherford B. Hayes would see the first telephone installed in the White House, but even up to the presidency of Benjamin Harrison nearly a decade later, as there was not someone responsible for answering the White House telephone, and there were still few telephones in general, the new technology wasn't at that point in history effective for presidential communication. Other than that, besides minor personal quirks and additions, for the most part, presidential public relations during the Reconstruction and late 19th century era remained pretty consistent. Then came TR. Teddy Roosevelt can be described with many words, but conventional is not one of those words. Roosevelt understood the power of the press more so than a majority of the presidents, and he decided to put it to work on his behalf. Rather than keeping the press at arm's length, he invited them in and initiated the practice of having informal chats with reporters. 
He would speak to them off the record, one-on-one, -on -one, in order to gain their trust and confidence, with the ultimate aim being that such access would buy him some positive press. Turns out, it worked. T.R. was a charmer, and for the most part enjoyed favorable press during his tenure in office. He also realized that the office itself gave him a metaphorical loudspeaker with which to get his message across. If the president was speaking, people would listen, and this president liked to speak. The term bully pulpit would become synonymous with TR. The 20th century would see many more innovations in technology that would change the means with which presidents communicated with others, as well as many innovators in the office who adopted these new means to great effect in order to achieve results. Woodrow Wilson would revive the tradition of delivering the State of the Union in person to Congress, something which is now taken for granted as part of the modern presidency. Likewise, Wilson would be the first sitting president to make an extended tour outside of the nation, traveling to Europe in December 1918 to be on hand for the Versailles Peace Conference and to engage in the kind of personal diplomacy with other heads of state that is now considered an unquestioned part of the role of the president in the modern era. New technologies would allow Calvin Coolidge to reach out to the general public via radio, but it is his eventual successor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who is generally thought of as most effectively harnessing that medium of communication with his fireside chats. Though there were only 30 official fireside chats, having his speeches broadcast on radio and then eventually in newsreels for over 12 years left people at the time with the impression that he was a figure present in their lives. My countrymen and my friends, tonight my single duty is to speak to the whole of America. It is of course impossible to predict the future. I have my constant stream of information from American representatives and other sources throughout the world. You, the people of this country, are receiving news through your radios and your newspapers at every hour of the day. You are, I believe, the most enlightened and the best informed people in all the world at this moment. It allowed Roosevelt to relate on a more personal level with the public than had been capable previously. His other most effective tool for public relations was his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt. Due to the paralysis in his legs, Franklin depended on Eleanor to engage with the public in the height of the Depression and report back on conditions on the ground, as well as provide first-hand accounts to the progress of implementation of New Deal programs. Eleanor would use print media in an unheard-of way for a first lady as she penned a syndicated column called My Day, which she would use both to establish a personal rapport with the public, as well as to voice her opinion on administration initiatives and government matters. She would even go so far as to become the first sitting First Lady to address a National Party convention in 1940. Franklin Roosevelt was the first president to see the effectiveness of utilizing the First Lady as an active partner in the public arena to push for support of administration proposals, and Eleanor was a willing and effective ally to have in that role. The 1950s saw slogan-driven politics blossom with I Like Ike being the most prominent example. This trend had already informally begun with Give Him Hell Harry in 1948, but I Like Ike framed the campaign and came with merchandise, commercials, and a catchy jingle. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And as Eisenhower biographer Jim Newton wrote, quote, it struck some as trite 
But by Election Day, no adult American had not heard I Like Ike. The 1952 campaign not only created a winner, it changed the character of American politics. It would be 1960, though, that would bring the message and the image of presidential candidates even closer to the average American home, as John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon agreed to participate in the first televised presidential debate. Debates in presidential politics weren't completely unheard of, as eventual Republican candidate Thomas E. Dewey had debated his primary challenger, Minnesota Governor Harold Stassen, in a radio broadcast debate in 1948. But television would bring a new dimension to the debate. Contemporary polls showed that people who watched the debate on television felt that Kennedy won the debate, while those who had listened on radio thought that Nixon had won. As presidents became more familiar and recognizable to the general public, image increasingly came to play a larger role both in campaigning and in governance. For some presidents, though, their sheer presence demanded attention. Lyndon B. Johnson was known for his Johnson treatment in one-on-one -on -one conversations with politicians. He would get extremely close to the person with whom he was speaking, violating any sense of personal space. And as he was a tall man, typically, he would lean into and over the person and let into them. A contemporary described it as, quote, an incredible blend of badgering, cajolery, reminders of past favors, promises of future favors, predictions of gloom if something doesn't happen. When that man started to work on you, all of a sudden, you just felt that you were standing under a waterfall and the stuff was pouring on you. Johnson's mode of communication required a level of personal interaction and intimate knowledge of the individual with whom he was talking that just wasn't possible with every member of the public. But it was an effective means of pushing his agenda through with congresspeople and leaders. Presidents after Johnson would cultivate means of establishing personal interaction through media. Ronald Reagan was known as the great communicator for both his personal warmth and charm, as well as his ability to make the American people feel as if he was speaking directly to them and to break down complex designs into palatable concepts. I know this is a formidable technical task, one that may not be accomplished before the end of this century. Yet current technology has attained a level of sophistication where it's reasonable for us to begin this effort. As his biographer, H.W. Brands, wrote of the 40th president, quote, His mastery of the rhetorical art reflected his long experience as an actor and public speaker. His years with General Electric taught him to read a room. His time before the camera trained him to see an audience beyond the camera. He mixed humor and pathos, philosophy and anecdote. But his greatest strength was the focus he brought to his task. His message never changed. Details varied according to context, but the basic pitch was always the same, smaller government and lower taxes. Likewise, Bill Clinton was able to effectively communicate empathy for people suffering in the economic downturn in the early 1990s and rode that wave to the White House. Part of his appeal was due to a seeming willingness to get personal by answering more revealing questions such as boxers or briefs that had previously been felt to be unseemly to ask a president in the mold of the statesman George H.W. Bush. For better or worse, this delving into the personal aspects of a president's life would ultimately lead to the tabloid-esque scandals of the Clinton presidency and still remain as part of the modern presidency. George W. Bush would be the guy that folks wanted to have a beer with. Barack Obama would vacillate between the inspirational oratory of a statesman and the image of the self-deprecating father figure. Of course, Thanksgiving is a family holiday as much as a national one. So for the past seven years, I've established another tradition, embarrassing my daughters 
with a cornucopia of dad jokes about turkeys. But his public appeal won him two terms as president. The president became a familiar and at times a down-to-earth figure in the late 90s, early 2000s. The everyman president, so to speak, that could relate to the regular folks. Our current president, as with many things in his life, has attempted to take that idea and make it his own, and in turn has challenged the concept. Our 45th president has utilized the medium of Twitter to be able to reach out in a hitherto unheard of personalized way, and in 140 characters at a time, managed to convince a large group of voters in the 21st century social media age that he understands not just their concerns, but also can provide the solution, and in turn, is accessible to each of them in a way that politicians and presidents have not been previously. As noted in a recent episode from the Washington Post podcast, Can He Do That? Internet social media allows we the people direct access to the president with a few keystrokes. In some ways, this is the closest to direct democracy that we have ever come in 228 years. What will this mean for the presidency and for our nation? Time will tell. For now, our time on this episode is done. I hope you'll join us for our next episode when we return to the presidency of George Washington. But until then, please feel free to check out past episodes at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, or on iTunes or Stitcher if you're not listening to the podcast from there already. Should you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies. Or I'm also on Twitter at presidencies89. Thanks so much for listening, and take care, and chill next time. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.